Lonely Monk Productions. I don't know if y'all have heard the new Prince track, Welcome to America, but yo. That's my joy! joy. What's good, friends and family, neighbors near and far? Welcome to the third episode of the second season of the Yo, That's My John podcast. The podcast, website, brand, movement, way of life, dedicated to the embrace and championing of your passions. I am your host, Nate Runkle, a.k.a. John the Apostle, a.k.a. Johnny Loves Chachi, a.k.a. Nate, Nate, Bobe, Banana, Fana, Fofate, Me, Mamo, Mate, Nate, a.k.a. Johnny Tudos, a.k.a. Everybody's Favorite Johnis Brother, Nate Johnis, a.k.a. Nate 3.0, checking in for yet another podcast. As always, I hope this podcast finds you all in good health and in good spirits. A little later on, I talked to musician John Fay. He's just completed writing his memoir, The Yin and the Yang of It All, and we have an incredible conversation that you, of course, will not want to miss. But first, I want to take a minute to remember Jim Steinman. I first became a fan of Jim Steinman when I was a little kid. You know, surprisingly, it wasn't the symbiotic relationship with Meatloaf that first caught my ears all those years ago. It was his contributions to the 1984 Walter Hill classic Streets of Fire. Sides A and B both opened with Steinman tracks, but it was the one that rode the flip side, the epic Tonight is What It Means to Be Young that blew me away. I had never heard anything like it. It was bombastic and chaotic, and it built like a fever to a glorious release. It felt like a song written about the most magical moment that may have ever existed. That's just how Jim wrote. Big. Everything was big. And as the years went by before I knew his songbook inside and out, I found myself finding songs that I loved that gave me the same kinds of feelings. And every time I found that they were one of Jim's and I felt stupid. Of course they were Steinman tracks. They sounded like motorcycles and thunder. And the piano lines danced like raindrops, while the guitar riffs sounded like they were erupting out of the head of a guitar like lightning bolts. He painted in loud strokes meant to be belted at the top of your lungs, whether you could reach the note you were going for or not. His music sounded like Boris Vallejo paintings looked like passionate sonic D&D campaigns. The kind of songs that if you're in a bar and one comes on the jukebox, there is a chance that you might be about to find yourself singing a duet with someone across the bar that you have never met in your life should you just happen to lock eyes with them at the right moment. In the land of rock opuses, Jim made The Who seem like Rodgers and Hammerstein writing Carousel while he was churning out Andrew Lloyd Webber epics left and right. He was a genius songwriter, a maestro, and now, sadly, Jim Steinman is dead. But I don't think Jim would want us to be sad. Because two out of three ain't bad. Rest in peace. My guest today has been a staple of the Philly music scene for more than two decades. As the driving force behind the bands The Caulfields, John Faye Power Trip, Ike, John and Brittany, and The Meddling Kids, his music has been featured all over. From WMMR to Melrose Place to MTV to Little Steven's Underground Garage, just to name a few. He has currently just finished completing his memoir, tentatively titled The Yin and the Yang of It All. He is a true master of power pop songcraft, and I am honored to have him here on the show with me today. Folks, join me in welcoming John Fay. 
All right, I think we are recording. I am here today with the great John Fay. John, thank you for joining me on Yo, That's My John. Nate, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. I am too. So one of the things I love to do when I start these things off is to um, kind of uh, to talk about some weird connection that I have. Um, so my weird connection with you okay. is, and I found this out randomly after the fact, but um, I used to have an acoustic duo um, maybe like 11, 12 years ago, maybe even longer than that. I, it's, time is a flat circle at this point. But uh, <laughs> I had this acoustic duo uh, with this girl, Jenna. And uh, it turns out she was the female lead in the deathbed music video. Um, <laughs> oh, Jenna Holcomb was the that's ex girl. That's exactly right. Like that. Yeah. Damn. So, so small world, there's a, there's our, <laughs> there is our minor connection. Uh, she's, um, she's awesome. I, I'm still Facebook friends with her and I, I, uh, I, I communicate with her every now and again. And yeah, uh, she's great people. Super cool person. Yeah. And an amazing voice. Like, uh, I really, when we were playing together, I really thought I was going to ride her coattails to fame. Um, so, <laughs> well, you know, ironically, like, I don't know that I've ever heard her sing. Oh, really? Oh she's my God. She has an amazing voice. Uh, at the time, she was uh, dating the male lead in our video, this guy, Derek. And we were like, you know, you're awesome, too. You should be in this video also. So, <laughs> it's but uh, yeah, but I mean, yeah, she totally made that whole that whole video. That's Yeah, it's, it's she, she gives great faces in that video, like her, her disgust <laughs> face is perfect. <laughs> So Absolutely. tell me a little bit about um, growing up. Like what kind of music was playing around the house? Uh, okay. Well, interestingly, so I grew up in a house with um, just my mother and three older sisters, all of whom came over from Korea. Oh, wow. So um, my mother had no uh, kind of like context for rock and roll or Western music whatsoever. But my sisters, uh, being teenagers at the time when I was, you know, real little, um, they were pretty much into the stuff that was happening at that time. So my early musical diet consisted of a lot of Beatles, yeah. a lot of Beach Boys. Um, they got into like a pretty serious like 70s singer songwriter kick for a while. So. Mm -hmm. I listened to a lot of Carol King, a lot of James Taylor. You know, I remember one of my sisters was big into Cat Stevens at the time. So, you know, I mean, it was a pretty, you know, pretty serious amount of what was on the radio in like the early seventies, you know? Yeah. That and that's what I, that's my, what I consider my first phase of music. Um, you know, cause you know, when you're, be preteen you're pretty much influenced by whatever is happening you know with the older people in your life i guess absolutely and you know so you know it was pretty much what was on the radio so i you know it was definitely like the am gold you know hotel mm -hmm. era <laughs> uh when i was little and then you know when you hit your you, when you hit puberty and your hormones start to happen you know all of a sudden like you know you're into a little bit more uh, you know, edgy stuff. So mm -hmm. <laughs> that for me was like, you know, buying like, uh, you know, get the knack and like Candio by the cars yeah, and stuff like that. Um, you know, cheap trick live at Budokan, you know, those were, you know, and then, 
you know, also like a lot of, uh, so this would have been like late 70s. So like the first kind of music that I really kind of like felt was like, you know, this is my stuff, you know, was kind of like that new wave, uh, you know, kind of punk rock kind of thing, you know, like the CBGB scene, you know, I love the Ramones, Blondie, Talking Heads, all those kinds of bands. Yeah. I mean, that completely makes sense. Um, listening to your musical output, um, you know, it kind of, the, the influence is heavy there, like, uh, especially, um, you know, bands like Cheap Trick and stuff like that, you know, just that kind of power pop, like really good hard very, guitars. Yeah. You know, very much part of my musical DNA. You know, I don't think you can ever really extract that <laughs> right. from, from who I am, you know, but, you know, also at the same time, you know, I had other, you know, friends as a teenager who, you know, we got into like, uh, I was very big into ACDC, um, B-52s. It was just like a random sampling of like seemingly uh, disparate <laughs> yeah. records that we kind of shared together because we were always hanging out, you know, and, and, you know, it was that, you know, the wall, everybody listened to the wall. Sure. Pink Floyd. <laughs> sure. Uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, th that was definitely a time when I felt like, um, you know, I, I had like a, a, an inter inner fantasy life of wanting to play music. You know, yeah. I wasn't able to do it for a while, you know, um, even having these thoughts because I didn't play an instrument for a while. Uh, eventually, when I was like, you know, in maybe like uh, ninth grade, I would say I started playing the drums fairly seriously. And that was my first instrument. And okay. so I kind of like entered into the world of playing music through, you know, learning uh, how to play like Stuart Copeland's drum parts in the police very badly <laughs> it's a perfect place to start though because it was a, a very good place to start yeah yeah what a great drummer um so you know before you're before while you're playing drums and before you actually get an instrument to be able to do that are you do, is songwriting even a thing at that point like do you have like ideas in your head i have a funny story about that so so songwriting in the sense of lyric writing is very yeah. much in my head by that point in fact um when i when i'm about 10 years old uh, my friend from down the street and I uh, compile a notebook that is just full of like parody lyrics, like dirty parody lyrics mm -hmm. to various songs on the radio. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like not only like my first experience of like, you know, writing, if you want to call it that, but it was also kind of like my first uh, feeling of validation from that because, you know, it made my friend laugh his ass off. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, you know, rhyming shit and tit, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, of course. Uh, so it's like, um, I got a little bit of a taste of, you know, kind of the rush of like creating mm -hmm. as twisted of a start as that is. And of course, uh, my family finds the notebook and I get in huge oh, no. trouble with my mother who uh, literally makes me read the lyrics out loud. Oh no. <laughs> before tearing each page <laughs> out of the book and crumpling it and disposing it into the trash one balled up dirty song at a time. So it was quite the formative experience. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's really funny. That's actually how I got started uh writing songs as well. 
Um, and I feel like it really taught me song structure, you know, just kind of understanding, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, you know, stuff like that, bridge, that kind of thing um, in making these goofy songs that I would never today play for anyone. You know? <laughs> right. Well, I, yeah. I, well, I know that like, I, I don't, I don't know uh, how, what our age difference is, but like in the period when I was growing up, I mean, the pop song structure, that classic structure was pretty much all you heard. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So you had a nice intro, you had verse one, pre-chorus, chorus, verse two, chorus two, bridge, you know. Yep. Uh, and it kind of went in a very logical way, um, which, you know, it they did it that way because it works. That's you right. Know? So <laughs> That's exactly um, right. But yeah, so like that is all part of like, you know, maybe why I am kind of in that world of, you know, uh, power pop song structure and, you know, very kind of like beholden to uh, traditional golden AM <laughs> yeah. era pop music, you know. No, it totally makes sense. So you're you're playing drums. Are you um, kind of like how I started? Do, are you immediately jo joining a band? Like, are you playing with other people? Or are you playing by yourself? Not immediately, but um, but not too long after, you know, I bought the drum, my first drum set off of a friend of mine who actually was a member of my first band. So we were kind of um, developing our musical tastes simultaneously. We were listening to a lot of records together in common and, you know, we didn't have a band right away, but we were kind of, you know, I guess it would be called jamming, you know, yeah. like he, he had a bass, I had a, a drum kit, which was his drum kit until I bought it for $40. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, eventually we kind of uh, linked up with a couple other like-minded uh, classmates. And I, you know, by the time I was in like 11th to 12th grade, I did have a band. Yeah. Um, you know, we didn't have all the pieces uh, like my friend who I bought the drums off of actually wasn't in the first band. Uh, he would become kind of a member of the, the, the later edition of that band. So when we played our first gig in 11th or, or 12th grade, I think uh, we had to recruit our math teacher to play bass really on half the songs. He would only learn half. So, <laughs> so half the show is like this baseless, you know, white stripes thing happening. And then the other half, you know, there's a little low end going on. So nice. it was a complete debacle. <laughs> uh, so, you know, are you doing originals at that show or is that like mostly covers? Or we are, uh, we had written songs. Um, it's, 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 it's kind of interesting. Like all of these, memories that I'm kind of running through with you. Um, I recently put into a book that I've been writing about my life for the past few years. And so this story of our first gig is pretty vivid in my mind because I've, you know, took a few months to write about it, but okay. like, um, so basically we started our show, which was a, like a Halloween dance at our high school, uh, with two cover songs. We played, um, I will follow by you two. <laughs> nice. And we play and right. And of course in uh, the early eighties, people are going crazy, you know, when they hear that. And then we went right into twist and shout by the Beatles, which was, you know, an equally like rabid response. And then yeah. our third song was one of our own. Nah. And when I tell you that the place like cleared out, like immediately, <laughs> 
like I, you know, you couldn't have like written it more horrifically for the band. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's like, you know, as soon as you hear that thing, you don't recognize, it's like, Oh, let's go, let's go out in the hall and eat pop rocks or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> Were, so did you have to audition for that gig or was that like a, uh... our guitar player. And to this day, I don't really remember how he convinced our school to let us play. It was basically like, Hey, free band. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, and, you know, we kind of like hyped it up because our math teacher was in the group and all that. Uh, so, yeah, I, there wasn't really an audition process. I, I was just told to show up, yeah. which I did. <laughs> nice. Nice. So um, did you build like uh, any kind of following at that gig? Were there were there people who? Oh, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, uh, there was a serious sort of like... Uh, you know, uh, reevaluation of what we were doing after that gig. But however, uh, the guy who, uh, the main guy that I uh, was with in that group did go on to be part of like the next incarnation of the band, which my other friend who I bought the drums off of was also part of. And, but, you know, there was always this desire to write our own songs. Like yeah. it, it was, you know, we learned covers by necessity because, you know, you can be serious about writing songs and only have like six of them when it comes time to like play a show or something. Right. So, um, so we learned a lot of cover songs, you know, we did, you know, like I said, police and uh, you know, whatever we could, you know, cobble together. Yeah. But the goal for me and, and my bandmates was, you know, we want to be songwriters. We kind of were into that. Yeah. So, uh, and they were awful songs, but <laughs> you got to write all the bad ones to get to the good ones. I That's say, right. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, it, at at a certain point, I'm sure it had to flip into like, oh, we got this. This is something right. Um, at, it, music is what I want to do. Um, kind of talk through like how you got there. Um, it didn't honestly take long for me to get there. Uh, um, when it came time, like when we graduated from high school and we all grew up in Delaware, um, I had the option to either go to Temple here in Philly or go to the University of Delaware, which was in the town I grew up in. And my other friends were all going to Delaware. And that is literally what drove my decision to go there was because I wanted to keep my band together. Yeah. And we, we took it very seriously. Uh, we started playing gigs on campus that year. And that that was kind of like the road to generating a little bit of a following yeah you know we would play uh you know like house parties and you know we would play at the, the basement of the student center and this and that and by the time maybe the next year rolled around we decided to fire me as the drummer and make me just the lead singer okay. so we finally got like a proper rhythm section like two guys who were actually a little older than we were uh, who had been in a band before uh who whose instruments were bass and drums because you know uh like nobody's natural instrument was bass right <laughs> um so um that really kind of gave the way we sounded this huge uh kind of like step forward in terms of like sounding like we knew what we were doing yeah uh, um, and the songs were slowly getting better and i was able to focus more on singing them well since i wasn't like you know craning my neck 
you know, to <laughs> reach a mic stand to the left of the hi-hat, you know, yeah. um, and just like being out of breath the whole show. So, so it really kind of like went from there, you know, like I remember that year we were the band that was picked to play our, uh, you know, spring fling concert, you know, at Delaware and we opened for like Southside Johnny or something like that. Very nice. Um, and so that, you know, from there, you know, I mean, uh, Newark at the time, and apparently still is. I, I've I've heard in recent years that like Delaware is like the number one party school in the country or something ridiculous like that. But even back then, it was pretty happening in terms of like, you know, people went out multiple nights a week to bars that had live music. So there were lots of opportunities for us to play. And we just it just started to, you know, become a thing over time. Yeah. What, what did you go to college for? Uh. <laughs> Besides keeping my band together, I studied yeah. English. <laughs> okay. Okay. That uh, that was, initially, that was not my major. I, I, for whatever dumb reason, I thought that it would make my mom happy if I studied business administration, and I damn near failed out of it. Oh, wow. And so at a certain point, I was like, uh, Mom, I'd like to switch my major to English, because I knew that I would probably be pretty good at that. You know, it was easy for me to kind of make that transition. And, and so it, it was actually a, a very smart move. I think. Yeah. So you move to um, the front of the stage now. Um, at yeah. what point does the guitar enter your hands uh, immediately or? No, that's another thing. Like I'm trying to be a songwriter and I still can't play, uh, you know, a melodic instrument. Oh, wow. <laughs> so a lot of, uh, a lot of my early uh, songs were, you know, they, they by necessity had to be in collaboration with other people. Um, or, or I would hum an idea to the guitar player or, you know, those kinds of things. So it wasn't until, um, so this band, um, at a certain point, uh, we called the band the beat clinic mm -hmm. and it went through a couple of iterations with personnel changes. And at a certain point, the rhythm guitar player, um, from the band, uh, decided to leave. Um, so, it was like, well, we could hire another, you know, like by that time we had auditioned a lot of people for different instruments, you know, to find the original drummer and the bass player. And like, you know, like I was like, I'm not going through more auditions. That's yeah. the worst. <laughs> so, um, it was just, a, it was just the right time for me to pick up the guitar. And it was, you know, I was actually, um, you know, I played a little bit not in the band before I actually had to like pick it up and play it in the band. So yeah. I was by that point uh, serviceable because I was I was beginning to write songs with my own chord ideas and all that stuff. Yeah. So by the time I actually had to play the guitar in the band, um, I kind of was able to do it fairly seamlessly. Because yeah. I was I was only playing my songs, so if you you know it's a pretty sad commentary if you can't even you play can't. your own songs on guitar uh, that you wrote. So, um, but the, interestingly, like that's kind of also one of the things that kind of nudged us into the realm of being like we're all original from this point on, no more covers. In part because like I didn't really feel like learning the chords of songs that I didn't know how to do already because right, I sure. write them. So uh, so from that point, like the this band, the Beat Clinic, actually like the the same personnel changed our name 
to the Caulfields, which was the band that eventually got the record contract in the 90s. Yeah, sure. You know, and that's kind of um, uh, where I kind of first heard you guys. And I didn't realize um, that you were... um, were you um uh, i'll give you a little background the way i first um kind of put everything together on who you were and all um i was at the um i used to work at sam goody okay and um, (laughs) yeah that's right that's right and uh we got um the golden ticket to go to the parallel universe uh album release at north star first like album comes out yep yeah and um we went and first of all thank you open bar uh i got probably tried to uh, make it a thing you know (laughs) night for all (laughs) but at some point i believe in that set i think you guys did um devil's diary and it was like a it was like a moment of like boom oh now i know who this is you know like Nate, I think you've, you've hit the nail on like the story of my life. It's like nobody just automatically knows who I am. They have to have to, <laughs> have to go through. Oh, you're that guy. Now I, oh, okay. Cool. But yeah. at that moment, it all started making sense, you know, because, <laughs> I, you know, being a, a 90s kid, um, I was familiar with the Caulfield. So, you know, and I was a big, um, you know, Y100 listener and I was a big, you know, DRE and MMR back then. So, like, you were well, definitely the, in my it, orbit, you know. Yeah, we're definitely instrumental in, uh, you know, getting launching the Caulfields onto the national stage. Because once our record came out on A&M, you know, it's you know, you kind of have to break it in your home market yeah. for that to sort of say, okay, we'll roll this out a little further. Yeah. And then once we had Philadelphia, then a lot of different places started to fall in line. So, yeah, we're very- I, you know, and I know you're putting in the work before that, but all of that seemingly, um, and, you know, I'm just looking at dates and trying to remember history, but seemed to like really explode pretty quickly. Um, well, that was the power of uh, having a major record label pushing your band. At sure. The time. You know, it's obviously different now in the 2020s. But uh, back then, you know, if you had that kind of a record company behind you and really pushing something, I mean, they, they were going to get it done. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, it seemed like an overnight thing, maybe, but uh, it was actually... You know, by by 1995, we were like nine years into trying to be a band. And because yeah. to, to me, like it's all one long progression, even from that band that bombed at our high school. Like to me, like that is the that is the beginning of it. I mean, there's no break in the line as far yeah. as I'm, like, that's where it starts. That was one of the uh, really amazing things to me. Um kind of doing the research I've been doing preparing for this was just what you're saying. Like there is seemingly no stop. Like you started rolling and then just kept, kept going. And I mean, that's incredibly admirable because, you know, there are things like, um, so like when the, you know, the label issue kind of goes through and all like that could be the kind of demoralizing thing that sends people, you know, backing, but you kept No doubt. And, and trust me when I tell you, there were, um, <laughs> there were things being whispered in my ear <laughs> by uh, people who cared about me, you know, like, oh, well, buddy, you know, maybe you should go back to school or uh, you had a good run, man, you know, like that kind yeah. of thing. 
And it was definitely, uh, you know, so the band, the second album and the, the band's demise happened in 1997. Uh, and yeah, after that, I mean, there's, you know, there's a, not a very long kind of like feeling sorry for myself, but a short period of time where I'm like, all right, uh, what do I do now? Um, and luckily for me, um, I just came to the conclusion that I was a lifer in all yeah. of this and just, you know, kept going. And I was very fortunate because I still had some people in the business, maybe not the label side of it, but like radio people who knew managers and stuff like that, who really still um, wanted to support me and help me out. So it wasn't long until um, a friend of mine in Atlanta, who was a DJ at sort of like the, the Y 100 equivalent down there, um, hooked me up with um, a manager that he knew. And so before I knew it, I had management again and we were off and running on a project that became known as the John Fay power trip, which was between the call fields and Ike. And to be honest, like that record did better than our second album on the major label because we had like a lot of things in place. We were able to tour uh, do a lot of dates with uh, this guy, Matthew Sweet, who was really, really big in the 90s. I'm an enormous fan of Matthew Sweet. <laughs> and uh, well, <laughs> it's like, I can't just say a name like that and assume everybody knows anymore, you know? Sure. It's, oh, I know. But like, yeah. So like, but yeah, we did, uh, we did a huge block of dates on his In Reverse tour in 1999. And that kind of like propelled our independent record uh, to a, to a better place than our second A&M album got, you know, cause yeah. that, that got no shot at all. Um, so that kind of made me also realize that, you know, there is life as an independent artist, you know, you can make things happen on your own. Yeah. And there are, you know, I realized I had a, you know, a s small but loyal network of people all over the country that, you know, kind of wanted to see me succeed. So I was able to kind of like tap into that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you came in a really great time for that kind of radio, especially like a local radio station that kind of has its own energy and has its own kind of built in committed community. And you, you know, you, the, the kind of music you make fit, perfectly for those kind of stations um so to me it's not even a surprise that you know you would find success label or not um with that kind of network uh well it certainly didn't hurt to have people rooting for you yeah uh, but even then i mean you know when you are not on a major label and you're competing with records that are on a major label it it kind of makes it twice as hard yeah. to get their play because you know they're almost always gonna add the record on you know <laughs> interscope of before course. they add you know your independent little thing but we were really lucky um with uh like y100 at the time the single off of the john Fay power trip album got put into this thing called the cage match i don't know if you remember the cage match i do i do but the, uh, it's the call-in thing. It's like they play two songs and you get, you get a vote. Um, and so somehow 
uh, our song won the cage match like 13 nights in a row, wow. which convinced um, the programming department that yes, the song should probably be in the rotation. Um, and from that, we also were put into this uh, kind of contest thing called the big break. It was kind of like a battle of the bands thing, which at the time I was like, Oh, come on, man. I'm like, 33 you know am i gonna be do i have to play another fucking battle of the band this is how i this is where i'm at um but uh amazingly we won the battle of the bands and the um so this was at the tla and then uh the grand prize that you get as your big break was opening for rem oh my god camden at their big uh you know e-center whatever it was called at the time uh show so you know, so we had some pretty cool, big, high exposure things uh, that happened for us because of all that stuff. So, but it was all very, uh, you know, kind of like everything was worked very, very hard for, you know, like it wasn't sure just handed over. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, beyond just the work, like the strength of um, the songwriting, I mean, you know, at, by, by this point you're getting, you know, um, and this is, you know, personal opinion, but I feel like your, your, your voice, you found your voice, you know what your voice is at this point and you know, your strengths and you play them very well. Um, it's Thanks. one of the things I've always appreciated about your music. Um, I, I would agree with your assessment. I think that at that point, I'm, I'm really kind of like coming into my own as the songwriter I aspired to be. Um, whereas, you know, there are definitely flashes of, of that all, the, all along the way. But yeah. like when that um, Power Trip record came out, um, like when I heard it in its entirety, I was like, oh, okay, this is pretty good. <laughs> Absolutely. Or, or at least it's, you know, it's like, it was a collection of songs, like all 12 of which I had, you know, really invested myself in. And uh, I just felt really, really good about it. And I, sure. and I think in terms of my actual singing voice, I had, I had really kind of like uh, broadened my range a little bit. And, and, and I, I think I was beginning to sound more like the person I sound like today right at that point i started to sort of like develop that yeah so uh power trip kind of folds into ike yes correct yeah um it's this, and, yeah. Uh, same people that that toured behind the power trip become we decide to like name it you know like i was never i, I wasn't 100 percent comfortable you know having that uh be our project name like forever and the guy that was producing us, you know, at the time said, you should really consider naming yourselves like a band. You know, if, if this is going to be like a continued thing, you guys are a band. So yeah. you should name yourselves a band. I was, yeah, you know, that makes sense. So what do we do? What do we name it? And we went through, uh, uh, <laughs> that was a process. I can't remember any of the other bandmates suggestions, but I do recall very specifically that every one of us literally hated everybody else's ideas. <laughs> <laughs> like there was not one vote to corroborate anyone else's name ideas. And I think it was my, my ex-wife who at one point, you know, I was like bemoaning the situation to her. And she said, well, why don't you just name your guys band after like a name, you know, 
and uh, we were watching a lot of South Park at the time, and the baby on South Park is named Ike. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was like, that's a great name. We're going to call it Ike. Three letters, can't misspell it. You know, like the Caulfields always had our name misspelled. It was like, it was like the story of the band's life, <laughs> people leaving out the second L and all that shit. Mm-hmm. So um, I was like, you cannot misspell I-K-E. If you, you have to be a complete moron to not be able to spell this name right. So I, I think that that was, that was the thing that pushed it over the top, really. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, parallel universe, um, we got the demo when we got, or we got the, um, Oh, what did they used to call the promo? Uh, when, um, when we got the golden ticket and, um, it, we, we kept it in constant rotation in the store. And by we, I mean me, because I am, I am, I am a guy who loves, like you play right into everything I love about like pop music. So like, you know, infectious chorus, chunky guitars that's like it's almost like you were built to write music just so that i could hear it um but but i became really obsessed with that album like uh it's just it's so good like it's so good i was just listening to it again the other day kind of leading up to this but um well it's very interesting you bring that record up because uh you know mark rogers he's the host of hometown heroes it's a local music show yeah delaware he literally put on my Facebook this morning. He was like, I was ripping CDs last night and I found this and it's a screenshot of his, uh, you know, Mac, you know, or not, or uh, windows rather like screenshot of his uh, playlist of parallel universe, but next to parallel universe in parentheses, it says new, but with no shrink wrap. (laughs) We must've sent you like my personal, shit burned copy of it because that's all i had (laughs) oh that's awesome (laughs) that's awesome so um you you know move on from there you know you get to sing the national anthem at the eagles game uh which um how terrifying is that because i can't even imagine Uh, (laughs) that's a tough song like that i mean beyond being in front of all those people that's a really tough song well you know what they say about the national anthem start low yeah. So I, I actually, yeah, it was, the thing, the interesting thing about that experience was it was very last minute because um, at that point I had a manager from Philly who was also managing the great Lauren Hart, who, as you know, is the go-to anthem singer. Absolutely. For any event. In yeah, this sure. Um, and she was supposed to do it. And I think she got sick or something happened. So I literally got called, you know, maybe like, 24, 36 hours before the event. Hey, you want to sing the national anthem at the Eagles game? Sure. Why not? I mean, I had sung the national anthem prior to this. It was not my first time ever singing it. Yeah. I sung it. Uh, weirdly, there was a guy who came to see uh, the John Faye power trip in the early days of Ike, who was in charge of like the basketball games at LaSalle. So he had me sing at LaSalle basketball games on occasion. And I had also done like a Philadelphia soul indoor football. Okay. Uh, John Bon Jovi owned yeah. <laughs> football team. So I had sung it a couple of times, uh, but none of that would can prepare you for the experience because it's literally the largest crowd I had ever and ever will sing for in one shot it was like sixty-eight thousand people Unbelievable. And, um 
And you have a lot of time to get nervous because they make you get there like three and a half hours before the time you sing it. So you're like sequestered in the bowels <laughs> of the stadium for like hours. Uh, so I'm just like sitting there, like, you know, eating the, off the deli tray and <laughs> blowing into this fucking pitch pipe that I brought, you know, to like, oh, yeah, I think a low, I better do it in B, like, oh, say. And I'm just like singing, oh, say hundreds of times over just to like get the opening note in my head. And then you walk out and um, luckily they give you these in-ear monitors. I mean, the echo is so like unbelievably uh, disorienting. Like if you didn't have it, you would, you would feel like you were like on some acid trip probably. Yeah. Um, so I had the in-ears and um, I blew into that pitch pipe literally like 10 seconds before my name got announced just so I could hear the note one more time. And then I did it. It's <laughs> awesome. And it was uh, over in a flash. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't imagine, you know, you talk about the echo. I was in um, the, my, my nerdy past. I was in marching band and uh, uh, we marched at the Meadowlands and uh, the echo, I you know, we're blowing big giant horns and the, the echo, like it was one of the most surreal things ever because first of all, you're, you know, big, huge lights, big, huge stadium. And then mm. also sound makes zero sense, you know, yeah, so. it's like an infinite feedback loop or something, you yeah. know, it's, it's like, all right, well, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> yeah. I, but, I, uh, you know, um, as an experience, you know, definitely once in a lifetime just being able to hear that uh number of people uh respond at yeah, the end you i'm know, sure you hit the you I, I totally milked land of the free for a few extra seconds you know let that note hang yeah uh, and then uh you know let it sit let it sit in the air <laughs> and it was cool it was very cool that is awesome yeah. So, you know, you guys uh, then, you know, into Philadelphia gets played at all sporting events um, all yeah. over the place. Like, um, you know, how kind of uh, touch upon like w your relationship with Philadelphia, you know, you're a Delaware guy, but, uh, you know, you are like. Well, a yes. Yes. And yeah. So I grew up in Delaware, but I actually was born in Philly. Oh, OK. Um, my my mother uh, met my father in Philadelphia in Northeast Philly. Um, so this would have like the year before I was born is when they met. Um, and when they had me, we, we, you know, my mom and my sisters had been living like in, in penny pack in Northeast for a couple of years. Cause my mom was taking her medical residency at Einstein hospital. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and so they were definitely like, Philadelphian <laughs> and my yeah. father lived in Philadelphia all his life. Uh, shortly after I was born, we actually moved to Trenton uh, until I was like up just about three because my mom got a job at the um, Trenton, like the state hospital in, in Trenton, New Jersey. And they had this housing that was like on the grounds of the hospital. I guess it was cheap. So the whole family like lived there until I was like just about three and, you know, I guess, I guess in your early days of being a doctor, you move around a little bit. So it wasn't long before she got a job that uh, resulted in us moving to Delaware when I was three. Okay. So, so I, you know, I did have, I mean, 
a little bit of a connection to Philadelphia, you know, just from birth, but all throughout high school, you know, I would take, uh, you know, as soon as we got our driver's licenses, we were driving up and hanging out at zipper head on South street. And, you know, where else are we going to buy our dead Kennedy's t-shirt, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so Philadelphia had always had this, um, pretty mythical stature in my head, obviously like the first time, um, coming up with the band to play in Philadelphia, we played at JC Dobbs. It was our first, uh, show, um, in Philly. And so I, you know, feel like my connection to Dobbs, which dates back all the way to like 1987 or 88 or something, you know, lasted all the way through, uh, the 2000s because I eventually became like the open mic night host there for like four years. Yeah, I remember. And that. so, the, you know, the connection to the music scene and the city was always kind of there, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but getting to the song Into Philadelphia, which you brought up, um, by the time that song was written, uh, I was living back up here in uh, like Elkins Park, which is like the kind of like the first northern suburb outside of the city sure and, um that's where the genesis of the song starts to happen because uh, when my son was born i found that i had to drive him around multiple nights a week in the middle of the night in a honda odyssey <laughs> to get him to go to sleep. He was very, very unruly, cried a lot, early teether, the whole thing. And so that song basically comes from this one middle of the night drive that we do uh, where I, I would always take random turns and somehow the turn I chose put us heading south into the city in the middle of the night. And just the line, baby, do you want to take a ride into Philadelphia came from that drive. That's awesome. And so uh, a few weeks after that, the song gets written in its most basic form. And then I take it to the band and we develop it. And eventually it gets, um, you know, on our album in real life. And at, right around that time, uh, you might recall that uh, WMMR started to sort of get back into the space of really promoting local music. Yeah. And um, Jackson, who is the uh, afternoon drive DJ at the station, and he's been there basically since the year that Into Philadelphia came out, because he's really the person that I credit with that song being anything of notoriety, because he put that on... Um, a local music CD compilation that the station released called uh, Jackson's Local Shops Volume 1. And it was the lead track on there. And as the lead track, um, they began to play it in regular rotation on WMMR. And it was from that exposure that all the stuff with it getting played at sporting events and, and whatnot started to come from that. So it's all just a series of serendipitous, fortunate events. <laughs> it's awesome. It's yeah. awesome. You know, you, you know, you mentioned uh, those CDs. That's one of the things I really miss about local radio. And I miss about radio stations in general is like those local CDs or like, even like the Sonic session CDs and stuff like that. Yeah. Just things that are so like 
of the time in the area that you know they're like little kind of time machines i love it absolutely you know i mean you think about how much uh things have changed in terms of just like how people uh listen to music or appreciate music now yeah you know i mean back in a certain era it was like such a huge deal to like you know be able to get a ticket to go to the sonic session to see somebody play unplugged in a recording studio and you know now you know a band will just like make a video a youtube thing and up it goes and <laughs> that's right you know I'm, I'm surprised at how many bands um break having never played live shows like it's it's really incredible like what yeah, it's a whole different thing you know um but i what i do think we are you know for all of the advances in technology which i i do my best to embrace actually i mean i think uh, i think it can be really useful but i think what we're missing is that sense of community yeah and that sense of like, you know, just being in a, a, a common place together to appreciate something in the flesh. <laughs> yeah, I kind not of... Just, not just because of the pandemic. I think in general, you know, we've kind of, we lost that before the pandemic. Yeah, I, I, I just kind of did a thing um, on a little mini episode um, earlier in the season about um, my relationship with WXPN. And, and that's one of the things I touch upon is like that's it's one of the last communities I feel um, that actually feels like a community, like the people who listen to XPN will kind of give anyone a chance. Like you go to one of the festivals or one of the shows, they'll pay attention to every band as if they've ever heard them, you know, before. And, uh, it's, it is, it's really rare. And it's sad to me because I, you know, I'm somebody who was raised on music and raised on local radio. And that's kind of what made me want to make music and want to be a part of the community. Um, and I just don't know that, it exists like it used to and it's it bumps yeah but i i guess the challenge is to, you know one of the things that i kind of came to the conclusion of is if you don't see your community out there start it build it yeah <laughs> build that's it right. and that's you know and that's kind of where this came from and th this project this website and all um because i want that community back like i want to have i like having music discussions and i feel like no one talks about music anymore it's yeah no this this is great it's awesome <laughs> <laughs> well thank you thank you um so moving from ike you um do john and Brittany. Um, and you yeah. get some good success there on little Steven's show. Um, how did that kind of come about? Right. So, so Ike has a pretty substantial run. Like we're together for about eight years and we have a couple different lineups and around the time of our 2009 record, which was called tie the knot with all that you got. Um, I met this girl, Brittany Rotundo. Um, and as events unfolded we became a songwriting uh partnership and duo uh it's pretty interesting i mean she didn't uh when we met she was not a musician she didn't oh, really? play guitar in her life um so we it was kind of like um it's very cool and interesting for me because as we began to write songs the way we got her into i guess what you would call um uh 
playing shape, you know, in order to like be able to like play shows on stage was we would go around to open mic nights, probably four nights a week for a pretty long time. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, for someone like myself who had been through like a lot of different career phases by then, it was very, uh, it was very interesting experience to kind of like really go back to, I mean, I never played open mics before that period, really like, you know, none of my, that kind of scene didn't exist when I was forming my first bands. Okay. No. Um, so I was kind of getting into like a community that I had never really been part of before. Um, but it, it, it was really cool actually. Like we met a lot of people through that. It was almost, I think I would not be exaggerating by saying that we developed a lot of our early following through that, the open mic. Really, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then as we got to the point where we were starting to make records and we had, you know, some really excellent, uh, drummers and bass players that, uh, helped us along the way and, and engineers too. Um, then we started to kind of shift this duo thing into like, well, this is a rock band and we can go and we can play electric shows and really, you know, kind of like take that approach with it. And that's when, so we had an EP and then we did our first full length start sinning. Um, and that's the, that's the album that, um, got the attention of the underground garage. That's awesome. You know, you talk about those open mics, that's uh connection number three. So we did, um, Jenna was in the video. Uh, I was at the, um, record release for parallel universe. Number three, uh, we played an open mic night together at the grape room. So, uh, right. We were very often there on Monday nights yeah, to so. uh, the grape room, which was always fun. You know, I mean, they had, uh, had some really good people there. I mean, we were obviously scooter was an old friend and, um, you know, they had cool people playing there yeah. too. Different yeah. kind of crowd than like the center city vibe. Yeah. Know? I always, I always loved it there. And that was, um, you know, when, when I, I gave it a push at one point, um, to just play original. And, uh, that was kind of like my home base. Like most of the shows I played were there. Um, and, uh, always had a great crowd, whether they were people I brought or not, like everybody very yeah. responsive to the music. Mm-hmm. Like it was great. I mean, you know, I mean, it's one of the, I got to get back out there. It's been a while. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, since I kind of immersed myself into that kind of community, um, you know, I mean, and we would play not only like the grape room, but we would cross the bridge and play a lot of open mics in New Jersey. And it's all, it's all kind of like, you know, slightly different crowds at each one. And you realize like this, this is a real connection with other musicians, you know, I mean, there's really no better way to like really make friends with other musicians than to do that. Cause you're all kind of like, well, we are all just getting two songs a night. So most of the time you're just hanging out (laughs) and talking about, you know, whatever, you know, records you're into or, you know, Oh, we've got a proper gig next week. Will you come? (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) That kind of thing. Um, so we were, we were so yeah. talking about the underground garage. Um, did you, you know, you guys, w- what placed third in the year end poll um, yeah. with um, for the uh, coolest yeah. song in the world. Um, did you get to perform on the underground garage at all? Or was there any? Uh... So, yeah, they don't, they don't really do like live performance stuff. No. That, 
But what it was is like, so, um, so little Steven Van Zandt, who everyone knows is, you know, little Steven, you know, right. <laughs> guitar player for the E Street Band. He's, you know, Silvio from the Sopranos, you know, major, major human being, you know, and yeah. very uh, conceivably intimidating, really. Um, so when we first put Start Sinning out, um, we had these, we had a, some friends who are actually still very dear friends, this band from central PA called the jelly bricks who had already themselves had numerous coolest songs in the world. And I called them up and I said, what's your connection to this? You know, because I think, uh, you know, um, like the Ike stuff, I didn't ever really, you know, push to, uh, you know, satellite radio or anything. I mean, I was yeah. in the world of terrestrial radio with that stuff, but um, they sort of like pointed us in the direction of a guy who had helped them. Um, and so I sent this guy, Mark Hirschberger, who was just like a, he had like a tiny power pop indie label in North Jersey and basically said, um, would, would you mind pitching this <laughs> yeah uh and you know we'll put like your imprint on the 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 one sheet along with our little label it'll be kind of like a co-promotion kind of thing no i mean not for money or anything he just did it out of the goodness of his heart and i couldn't believe like how quickly he got it heard and how quickly he called me back and was like hey how would you like to be the coolest song in the world in three weeks and i was just like get the fuck out of here unbelievable and you know it just sort of happened that way and the cool thing for me is that um you know steven selects these songs or okays each one personally like it's not like he's just a figurehead like this literally is his radio station like nothing played on that station that he doesn't approve of which to me is like the coolest uh you know validation absolutely um and so uh you know i still have the audio of like him introducing the song for the first time you know because i don't know if you ever listened to the underground underground garage on on serious oh of course um you know he usually has like a little bit of an intro tells a story and then, you know, this week's coolest song in the world, Anna Brittany from Philadelphia, you know, and uh, it was just awesome. And that's so cool. You know, and we were just really lucky to then, um, you know, kind of like make some uh, friendly connections with some of the bands that are kind of like regulars on that station. So we ended up doing some cool stuff up in like New York City, played the Mercury Lounge with a couple of the bands that do really well on underground garage. And um, so, yeah, that was, that was really awesome. You know? Very cool. Very so like cool. that kind of became John and Brittany's thing, you know, like that's, that's where we were like, well, this is where our audience potentially is. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the EP that we put out after start sinning had a coolest song in the world on it. Also the song St. Valentine. Yeah. Um, and, little Steven actually named that EP stories to be told, um, which was another kind of cool aspect of the whole thing. Wow. Uh, How'd that? Well, it was just like, uh, we were talking to the uh, producer of underground garage and we were like, well, here's our EP. I don't know if we know what we're going to name it yet. 
And then, I don't know, I can't remember like the exact timeline, but like not too long after that, he was like, well, it's, Stephen thinks it might be cool if you named it uh, Stories to be Told. We have a song at the end called Story to be Told. Oh, okay. And I'm like, all right, well, uh, I think if this guy uh, has an idea to name the record, we're going to take that idea. <laughs> so, yeah, I, guess we, I guess we could go with that. Yeah, I think that makes sense. That makes complete sense. <laughs> no. And it actually is. It's a really good title for, for what it was, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that was our last record. Yeah. But it was a pretty good run, you know. I mean, we had, you know, uh, we had two EPs, a full-length album and a live album in, uh, like, three and a half years. So that was kind of a busy time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So yeah. then you move into um, doing everything yourself on Meddling Kid, huh? So <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, think, I think after all of that, you know, with, you know, I mean, so Ike never, like, officially, like, said, we're done, you know, yeah. it was just like uh, lives were changing, you know, uh, Brett and Susie, who were who were uh, are a guitarist and bass player and Ike, who were at the time a married couple, had a kid. Um, and John and Brittany was just like naturally getting busier. Yeah. So I kind of like just kind of came to a halt. And when John and Brittany ended, I was um, I definitely had like this. uh this, thorn in my side like you know you know what i'm just gonna do everything by myself <laughs> i don't need nothing so, so i went in with um my friend Stephen lafasha who had engineered all the john and or most of the john and Brittany stuff um actually brett from ike engineered the first john and Brittany ep but uh i had so steve lafasha was the guitar player from this band jealousy curve who you okay yeah familiar um and he's a great recording engineer and so he was basically my only uh partner in the studio um and he recorded me making every noise on that record essentially um and it was you know it was a cool thing like i i don't know that i would deliberately say like i'm gonna do that again yeah um but it was cool to know that i could and i think it turned out pretty well but Absolutely. you know now i'm at this point in my life, when I make new music and I am, I am currently writing songs and work and, you know, thinking about what my next thing's going to be. Cause it's been a few years, but um, I would say that I'm, I'm just kind of open to everything. Like if somebody who I think would be a good person to play on a record of mine is willing to do it, then great. But you know, if I have to do it myself just for convenience or whatever, I'll do that too. Yeah. You know? But yeah, the meddling kid thing was a pretty, um, you know, it was like a personal uh, accomplishment that I was proud of, you know, to be able to like basically do everything on a record and have it sound like it was a record (laughs) (laughs) instead of just some idiot just bumbling around and trying to like throw a bunch of tracks together. Yeah, and not just a personal accomplishment, but also, you know, there's some personal songwriting on there. You know, uh, Church and State is a very strong, very strong personal song. Um, Sure is. Yeah, thank you. I mean, uh, that song uh, was sort of inspired um, after my mother passed away in 2012. And it's just a super personal kind of... um, me talking directly to her and kind of, um, and yeah, I mean, I, it was really important to me to, 
have that song on there and have that be part of what I was doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of the theme of a lot of my songwriting over the years is that I seem to be willing to put the heart on the sleeve. Yeah. <laughs> it were. Very For much. Better or worse. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if, um, <laughs> if it's TMI or something, but you know, it's, it's funny. Cause, uh, I remember a, a songwriter friend. Um, I think this was one of, after one of the Ike albums came out. Um, it might have been Where to Begin, uh, which was the second to last one, second to last full length. And uh, he was like, John, I really like the songs on this album. Are you okay? <laughs> uh huh. Uh, like, well, the answer to that is complicated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, to me, like, that's part of what songwriting is there for, for us, is to serve as that outlet where you can say whatever you want and, and be vulnerable and, and not feel inhibited to, like, really just pour your heart out. Yeah. Yeah, it's that kind of release that, um, you know, there was that song as going back probably 10 years or so ago that I forget, I forget the, the woman's name who put it out, but, um, 3am where she's talking about, um, putting the, putting the lyric down on the page to save the person writing it or, or whatnot. And like, it was one of those lines that when I heard it, I was like, that might be the best line I've ever heard in my life. Like it, it just hits so close to home. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, but I, I, you know, I, you may or may not be aware that I've been teaching songwriting uh, for the past. Uh, I am at Drexel, right? Drexel, yeah. And um, that's one of the things that I really try to uh, impart on the students is to, you know, don't be afraid to tap into that place where you're kind of letting your defenses down and you're willing to speak your truth in what you're writing, you know, because I, I, I know for a fact for myself, I spent a lot of years kind of, uh, tiptoeing around the point <laughs> yep. Yep. with what I wanted to say, you know, um, and it wasn't until, you know, like we had talked about earlier, like us at a certain point in my writing life when, um, you know, in spite of a couple flashes of that along the way, it just became my default way of writing songs. Um, and I, it took kind of a lot of years to do. So I'm trying to like, let the kids know, like start working on that now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so maybe by the time you're, you know, 33 and making your fourth record, you'll really have something <laughs> going for you. <laughs> so you said you're working on a memoir um last i saw um still titled um church and state like no. no title has changed numerous times okay uh so the update is the book is done i actually finished it uh end of last year did the principal writing like got that completed and then i did two full read through self edits at the beginning of this year okay didn't end until about three weeks ago, probably. Um, and so I have changed the title um, to uh, the yin and the yang of it all. Okay. I like that it. Is, and, and one of the reasons that I 
switched it from church and state is that um, I, I think the connotation of that might have like just sort of veered into like what is this like some kind of political religious uh you know something going on which is which it wouldn't have been but you know i had fiddled around with like a number of like titles that referred to songs of mine mm-hmm. and it occurred to me that like none of those like fully encapsulate what i was trying to do with the book and part of that is because i didn't really know until the, it was done <laughs> You don't really see all the threads until you can really look at it in this macro kind of sense once it's done. Because as you're writing it, it's all just like, well, this is the chapter about this. I have to cover this. And, you know, and then it starts to unfold to you as the writer what the threads and the themes of your story are. And part like the the major part of it that I kind of realized is that like my life has been this series of dualities, much like the yin and the yang. Um, and I, it's been sort of like this process of um, coming to grips with those uh, contrasting forces that make up who I am and what my experiences have been. You know, every time something really great happens, it's, counterbalanced by something potentially like rather tragic, you know? And so, um, and I think it's, my life has been this process of, you know, understanding that those things must find a way to coexist. Yeah. In order for me to ultimately be a a happy person, (laughs) you know, because if, if you are just sort of like, blown in whatever direction the wind blows you, whether it's into the good column or the bad column or whatever, you're, you're not going to have a very uh, centered (laughs) uh, life and mental state. Um, So I think, uh, and, you know, part of it is um, I write in the forward of the book about the one tattoo that I have, which is actually a yin and the yang symbol on my arm here, which you cannot see, but um, it's a yin and a yang. And it's also got um, shamrocks in it. And it's supposed to me, it's supposed to represent my Korean half and my Irish half because I was Irish. My mother was Korean. It's an admittedly unusual mix. And it has for most of my life, uh, up to a certain point, it felt like a very incongruous mix where I didn't really know who I was or where I stood or who actually accepted me. It felt like neither side really fully embraced me. Mm. And so it kind of became like, uh, you know, I have these opposing forces within myself and there's, it's just disarray. <laughs> sure. Um, and it wasn't until music kind of like came into my life where I realized like, I, I may not have a, like feel a huge connection to my Korean ethnicity or my Irish ethnicity or, you know, Anglo ethnicity, but I definitely discovered that I have a musical ethnicity and that's the sense of community that I have felt time and time again with different sets of people and musicians and music lovers through every phase of my musical life. And just the idea of that 
that's my ethnicity. <laughs> yeah. Um, and those forces coming together kind of make me who I am. So when I was trying to figure out, you know, like the, the, the phrase, the yin and the yang of it all is part of a sentence that was already written in the forward of the book. And then I was just like, you know what, maybe that's the title. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that the more I sit with that and the more I think about it, the more I think that that's going to be it. That's awesome. Is that, so are, are you planning on um, self-publishing this or are you um, sending this around or? I actually have been sending it around, um, but I'm very prepared to self-publish it also. You yeah. know, like um, I'm new to the uh, publishing game and um, I, I, you know, I'm lucky in that I have a couple of people who are connected in that world and the feedback that I've gotten so far has made me optimistic, but it also has made me realize like how much work it's going to be just to get the attention of an agent. Right. Who would then have to work hard to get the, <laughs> uh, the manuscript, you know, uh, to someone who would be interested in it. So um, in my own head, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to do my due diligence to try to get it, published through a you know one of the big publishing companies but if that doesn't happen i'm fully committed to getting it out there one way or the other well that's awesome i i really can't wait to read it like uh you you have a great story and you have a great career and it it must have been really cathartic to be able to reflect on it all <laughs> yes it was definitely cathartic it was it was a huge learning experience uh, you know you learn a lot about yourself when you really go back over the phases of your life and you know i learned some good things about myself i remembered some very bad things about myself sure. uh all of which is sort of laid bare um you know i i have a lot of uh a lot of memories in there where i look back and maybe knowing what I know now would have done things differently uh, as I guess we all would, you know, if you look back at what you do when you're a teenager or in your, in your twenties or something um, and you have the benefit of, you know, 30 more years after that to <laughs> kind of formulate a, a strategy, you probably would do a lot of things differently, but, um, but overall you're right. I mean, it's definitely a, a very big cathartic thing. Um, especially in talking about the stuff, there's a lot of personal stuff that's not directly tied to my musical life. So, I mean, the book is obviously a lot of it has to do with my musical life, but a lot of it is more my upbringing, my family, my relationship with my mom and those kinds of things. And I think writing about that stuff, it was even more uh, illuminating to me than, than just going over the music stuff. Yeah. Like the music stuff is in some sense, almost the comic relief. <laughs> uh, you know, you're a musician, you've got funny stories from probably just about every experience you've ever had. Oh in my God. Day, or, so. or, you know, traveling or, you know, doing whatever it is musicians do together, you know, and I, I kind of wanted to make sure that I portrayed my particular life in that world as accurately as I could, because it's definitely the farthest thing from a sex, drugs, and rock and roll experience. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly you know? right. 
And so, um, you know, when I think about like, you know, like I talk to some people who are trying to kind of advise me on the strategy of the book and they're like, well, who's your audience? I'm like, well, it's multifaceted, but I think, uh, you know, a, a, a good number of people like me who are, you know, working musicians who have just done it for years and have been through a lot and accomplished a lot, but maybe are not household names, you know, that's what I call like, you know, the musical middle class or whatever. Yeah. Not really middle class because we're all impoverished, but you know, like (laughs) the people who have done shit, you know, um, there's a lot more of us than there are superstars. (laughs) Definitely. You know, (laughs) So this one is for all my musician friends who are in the trenches that are, you know, can relate to, you know, just salivating over a deli tray and just praying that the club, you know, gives you something to eat. (laughs) All too familiar. I love it. (laughs) Well, sir, um, would you like to take the jauntlet? Um, at this time, would you? Sure. Yeah. Right, it starts with the one hit wonders. The first one, Sammy Hagar or David Lee Roth. Uh, I'm not a fan of either one of them as humans. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know Sammy Hagar that well. I heard, <laughs> I've heard bad things about diamond Dave, but I will say I'm a much bigger fan of the David Lee Roth era of Van Halen than I am the Van Hagar era of van halen so makes sense i will pick david lee roth okie dokie number two biggie or tupac uh i have to admit like i am not super familiar with their entire body of work but i will say that like i think tupac is somebody that i think i would gravitate towards a little more i think his his the personal aspects of his writing, you know, talks about his mom and stuff. Yeah. Uh, um, I think I'm a little more drawn to that than the biggie stuff. Okay. If I had to pick a hip hop artist, I'm more of a, I'm more of a run DMC man myself. <laughs> Same. Same. <laughs> uh, number three, Nirvana or Pearl Jam? Uh, Nirvana. Okay, dokie. Number four, Beatles. <laughs> Okie dokie. Yeah. I, I sense that that's not uh, th- usually the answer. <laughs> no, you know, it's weird um, because all of these, well, some of these, you know, Hagar or Roth, I don't think, I think I've had one person pick Hagar, but um, for, for like Nirvana or Pearl Jam, it's really give or take, like it's really yeah. been pretty much 50-50. So like, it's really interesting to see like kind of who gravitates towards who. Um, What's interesting about that choice is that um, I really respect Pearl Jam a lot, but I just have, uh, here's, 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 here's my rendition of me being a Pearl Jam fan. Okay. Okay. Uh, The Fixer, which is their single from a record called No Code. I don't know how many albums into their catalog this is. When that song came out, I was like, finally, Pearl Jam has a good fucking song. I like it. <laughs> That's my mentality towards Pearl Jam. Okay. Of course, okay. it would be hugely unpopular with most people. But, like, I like Nirvana from the beginning. Yeah. You know, like, I liked everything about that band from the beginning. Um, and, obviously, they don't have the longevity because sure. we all know why. But right. um, I just think, like, as a 
just a band that like did stuff that like just immediately appeals to somebody like me, like, you know, I would pick them in a heartbeat. Yeah. You know, it's still, it still to this day blows me away that they played JC Dobbs like that really just. They, they played JC Dobbs and then the Drexel Armory, which actually Ike did a show in the Drexel Armory, Armory um, at one point back in the day. And I was like, this place sounds like shit. <laughs> I'm sure that that Nirvana show sounded horrible <laughs> because they were probably three times louder than us. <laughs> right. Like, like, why would you have a show here? <laughs> <laughs> but yes. <laughs> uh, number four, this is the, the big one that everybody always battles Beatles or the stones. Oh, well, I think for me, it's gotta be the Beatles, but I do love the Rolling Stones. I mean, yeah. I, I, it's in a little bit of way, it's a kind of an apples and oranges thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, the Beatles were certainly more influential on me as a musician and songwriter, but, um, but I dig the stones. I mean, I really, I find them very compelling. Yeah. And, you know, well, I, people who listen to this are probably sick of me saying this over and over again, but for me, like um, the Beatles are like uh, kind of like just a bunch of geniuses who wrote really brilliant songs, but the stones are just like, like to me, the best band ever. Like, you know, like as a band, they are just like, awesome. yeah. I mean, when, you know, if you look at each individual in the stones, you know, the, I mean, they're all just super interesting to me. Like, yeah. Like I love Charlie Watts, like as a drummer, I always was just interested in him, you know, just the way, he, and you know, like a lot of, a lot of like people who came up playing the drums in the era that I did, you know, it was all very much like, you know, if you weren't trying to be Neil Peart, then right. fuck you, you know? Yeah. But like, I was listening to the drummers who played on the records I liked, which is why I was very into Stuart Copeland. I was very into Ringo and I was into Charlie Watts. Cause I, I just really liked the way he just thwacked that snare drum. <laughs> yeah. And there's, you know, nobody can play like four, four, like that guy. I mean, you can, you know, you can just tell when you hear certain drummers I and mean, if you just played the drum tracks, you can tell it's him and you can tell Ringo is Ringo. You can tell Stuart Copeland is Stuart Copeland. That to me means that that's a very musical drummer who really puts an imprint on the band they're playing in. Yeah. To me, that's the, I mean, that's the secret ingredient to like a uh, uh, really special music is if that backbeat can, you know, just kind of consume you and, and take you in, then that's, that's the meat and potatoes to me, yeah. you know? And yeah. and I say that as someone who can't play drums, I can't even think of moving hands and feet at different, <laughs> <laughs> forget about it. I can barely play guitar, uh, but <laughs> no, I mean, no, but you're right. I mean, like the, the Rolling Stones are just, just a, a super interesting band from one member to the next. I mean, they all have like a very distinct imprint on the music, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next one, favorite Beatle. I'm going to say Paul McCartney, but it's very close. Yeah. Well, it's, it's close. It's, it's like a three-way tie for first with Ringo being a distant last, but I mean, like, you know, John, Paul and George are all brilliant and they all had very unique sides to them. I think I'm probably not saying John because um, I just like the fact that McCartney has survived and is still doing it. 
because that's what I aspire to do. Like I would love to be making, you know, if not quote unquote relevant, uh, at least music that I'm personally passionate about uh, that long, that late into my life. I mean, I'm getting absolutely now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Uh, The last one hit wonder Prince or Michael Jackson. Uh, That's easier. I'm going to say Prince. I'm a big, I'm a big Prince fan. Yeah. You know, not not a Michael Jackson fan, but um, you know, Prince could do it all. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Okay. So the top 10 countdown, these are um, just uh, uh, 10 things. I use the word John. um, If I haven't explained this um, to mean anything. So it doesn't have to be music. It doesn't have to be, it can be whatever you want it to be. All okay. Right. So the top 10 t- countdown, number one, what was your first John? What was the first thing when you were younger that you were obsessed with? I'll keep it in the realm of music. And I'll, I'll say that my first obsession was um, buying 45s. Very nice. Records, uh, because that's how I kind of, uh, you know, when I first started making allowance, <laughs> Uh, you know, I would buy 45s and eventually I made my way up to purchasing the, my first 12 inch k album in, uh, <laughs> which Very cool. for the young ones uh, or the younger ones, that's kind of like the seventies version of uh, now that's what I call music <laughs> right, uh, right. compilations. But, um, but yeah, I mean, my first obsession was obtaining music. Yeah. Awesome. Number two, what's your current John? What are you into right now? You know, that's a very hard question. I don't know that I'm really into anything. <laughs> survival, man. I'm into that survival. Uh, you know, just being a, a good human being and not being too reactive to the world's many uh, hand grenades that it drops on us uh, every week. You know, I'm just trying to, like, live an even life. That's my that's obsession. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Number three, what was your first concert? Uh, That would have been um, the police with the Go-Go's as the opening act. Very awesome. uh, In 1982. Okay. Where at? Philadelphia Spectrum. Very nice. That that must have been a great show. It was obviously life-altering. Actually, I have to amend that. That's my first rock concert. Okay. Into a live show the year before, I believe. Um, and that was, I was in Hawaii with my mother visiting my sister who was living there at the time. And we, my sister got us in or got me in as a minor to see Don Ho. Very cool. <laughs> Very cool. Was drunk. He was hammered. <laughs> and I, it's just such a hilarious memory because I'm like 13 or something. And I'm at this uh, place called the Polynesian Palace in Honolulu. And I, I remembered that. I don't know if you ever watched the Brady Bunch uh, growing up at Religiously, all. Yeah. OK, so in the Hawaii episode, Don Ho makes a cameo. Yeah. And he says to Bobby and Cindy, Oh, you can catch me uh, and Sam here playing at the Polynesian Palace. So, you know, years later, so that's early 70s, now early 80s. I'm seeing Don Ho at the Polynesian Palace. He's been there 
the whole time. <laughs> so it's no wonder he's hammered. So he gets on stage and he's like, you know, telling like really dirty jokes. And I'm just like laughing and my sister's blushing. And, you know, <laughs> and like the whole audience is like these old ladies, basically. And he's like, hey, I want to come, come up on stage and we'll do, you know, just sing this one with me. <laughs> And he, I remember this like it was yesterday. He's like, okay, uh, put your hands in my front pockets and clap 20 times. Whoa. <laughs> Yo, Don Ho. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't get away with that now, but no, uh, no. 1980, whatever, uh, as a 13 year old, I'm like, oh man, this is the greatest <laughs> night of my life, right? That's awesome. You could buy the, uh, you could buy the Don Ho tiny bubble bubble doll. It was like a, it was like a thing of bubbles, soap bubbles. You unscrew his head and it has like one of those little blower things on it. You could blow bubbles with. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Perfect so, branding. So yeah. So that was actually my first live performance, but the police was the first rock concert. Okay. Number, <laughs> number four, what was the last concert you were at? Oh, that's easy. It was me. <laughs> that <laughs> because definitely I, I actually played my first show uh this past uh Thursday. Oh, my really? Yes, um, I played at uh, Jefferson University, which used to be Philadelphia University. Um, it was very interesting. It, I was uh, booked as a solo performer. They put you in the corner of the student lounge behind two plexiglass panes. <laughs> really? It was, it, was, it was cool. I mean, people were appreciative, but I was just like, this is just the weirdest you know, it's kind of like, you know, a lot of times nowadays, like you'll see like a drummer on stage yeah. behind these ridiculous plexiglass things, which, you know, come on, do they really make, you really need to do that right. in a big, you know, but that's what was in front of me. So I was, <laughs> I so badly wanted to do like, you know, like, should I smush my face against, yeah. you know, kind of like, <laughs> try to recreate like the cover of the lodger by David Bowie or something. <laughs> uh, but I didn't. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Number five. Uh, what was your favorite concert of all time that you've been oh, at? Man, that, that's, that's, that's a really hard one. Um, there have been a lot that I really hold in high esteem, but I, I think if I really think about it, I saw you two play at the Tower Theater when I was a teenager. Wow. Promoting the War album. This was their last theater tour before they really blew up. And the intimacy and the power of that show was, you know, that's the kind of thing that left a lasting impression on a guy who was at that point then thinking, like, you know, I might want to do this. Yeah. You know, because, you know, this you know, Bono's like hanging from the balcony with his white flag and everybody's afraid he's going to fall off, you know, <laughs> and it's just like, you know, that was like the drama of the live concert, you know, I mean, I had been, you know, obviously been to that police show and, and was very into the go-go. So I saw them multiple times as a teenager, but none of those shows had that uh, danger, I guess. Yeah. Uh, element to it and it was just super exciting to be part of that show because cool. i had been a u2 fan since like their first video on mtv you know in 1981 or 1980 or something so even at that point 
it felt like, oh, these guys are getting too big. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, little did you know, (laughs) all these years later, they're playing, you know, the giantest (laughs) stadiums on earth, you know. (laughs) Uh, Number six, who did you never see live uh, that you wish you would have um, and they could be alive or dead? Oh, that would be Prince again. Yeah. Totally wish I would have seen him, and I did. I uh, I had a chance to see Prince on the Purple Rain tour. Uh, a oh. ticket was purchased for me, uh, but my parents found out about what the stage show um, looked like and what occurred during the stage show, and then they sold my ticket. So oh. and I got to see Prince, but um, you know they're both past uh, now. But don't don't think that I did not let them <laughs> know let them every know. single oh, chance I could God. that they stole. Oh magic from me that's that's that hurts dude <laughs> <laughs> wow. uh, num- number seven name an unappreciated john name something that you think should be bigger than it than it ever was that is a tough one um i'm, I'm trying to think of maybe something that's not music since all of these are <laughs> music related um there's lots of lots of artists that I listen to that I think should be bigger and just aren't. But then I also think, well, well if they were bigger, would that would would that somehow uh, drive my liking of them into uh-huh. and I don't want, you know, like sometimes you're very protective of the things that you you think should be bigger, you know, very true. Like I, I kind of would approach it like that. Let's like if something's not as big as you think not commensurate with the amount you like it. It's almost like that's okay. (laughs) You know, like I don't, I don't need to share this with everybody. (laughs) Very true. I I completely accept that because I I am one of those people who am am like, I'm like, Oh, you should have seen them before when they were playing. You know, I mean, I mean, I'm sure everybody has those bands, you know, like, you know, and for me, like a lot of those bands, like people have heard of them you know, they get recognition to some degree, but like, why aren't they like massive? Right. Like, I guess a band like that for me would be, I don't know if you like XTC at all. I love, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, they have, you know, I, I don't know how many albums they have ultimately, probably like 15 or 16 records. The vast majority of which are in my opinion, like musical masterpieces. Right. And you know, a lot of people, if you say the name or if you play like a handful of songs, like, oh, yeah, I know, dear God. Oh, yeah, I know this or that. But, you know, not not as big as maybe they could have been. Of course, that also has to do with the fact that they stopped touring because of the singer's stage fright issues in the yeah. 80s. But, you know, I think everybody has those artists that they feel a, a deep connection to that maybe are not like the, the biggest names in the room you know um but i think a lot of people are comfortable with it staying that staying way. That way. yeah <laughs> absolutely uh number eight and this is a pretty tough one i understand so do, okay. you know, don't put you don't have to put too much thought into it but what is your favorite album this might seem as a left field choice for someone like me but i'm gonna say it uh back in black by acdc fantastic uh because it just has everything I love about rock music in it. I mean, in addition to being, you know, just like a front to back, just banger and masterpiece in terms of just like, 
you know, I mean, you don't necessarily associate ACDC with songwriting, but every one of those songs is memorable and everyone is catchy and everyone is impeccably arranged. And yet it's this, you know, I can't remember the exact quote, but it kind of resonated with me. Like a long time ago, I read something about them in the, some music magazine and the writer was like, you know, ACDC's music is like, you know, when you hear it, it's as if it has always existed. I like that. Carved into the rock of primordial rock and roll essence. <laughs> I like that. And when, you know, and, and it is kind of true. It's because, you know, like they're still making records and they all, they're not breaking any new ground with any new records. Yeah. And yet you can't help but love it each time. How do they do that? Any other band or artist, you would say, well, they're kind of like spinning their wheels and repeating themselves. Right. But it's what you want from them. <laughs> but it's yeah, they kind of give you what you what they know will satisfy you. But the, but not in a way that's like, I, you know, yes, you have heard it a million times, but not quite like this. That's right. Yeah. And it's just I don't know how they do it like that. That to me is like kind of mystical about them. Perfect. And for me, for me, back in black, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you want to get into the argue, the uh, Brian Johnson v. Bon Scott argument. I thought about but, putting them in the one hit wonders, but but um, it's there's just something about that record that is just so uh, perfect to me. Yeah, absolutely. That's the one I'll go with. Number nine, name an artist whose output you will consume anything they release, even if you have to be apologetic for it. This may be kind of left field, too, because I don't discuss it all that much uh, when I talk about music. But um, Juliana Hatfield. Wow. Perfect. I love it. Who is an artist that I believe. Uh, I mean, I haven't bought physical copies of stuff that she's done in the past few years because I just don't buy CDs anymore. Uh, you know, most of my listening is through streaming, but like mm -hmm. I for a while there, I literally had like everything she put out, whether it was like, you know, a single with B sides on it or, you know, whatever it was for years and years and years. I think I have more physical media by her as an artist, whether it be with the Blake babies, her first band or her solo stuff than any other person or artist. That's and great. I still listen to her most recent stuff. And she's done some cool stuff, actually. She did like a whole covers record of like police songs. And she did a whole covers record of Olivia Newton-John songs. Really? So I'm just like, you know, she's just being her, you know, like there's no rhyme or reason or, or even like the slightest nod to commerciality in what she's doing at this point, which I totally respect. It's like, I want to do this music fuck you if you don't like it. That's right. That's and awesome. That's, that's awesome to me. I saw her a few years back. Um, it was just her and Evan Dando, and they essentially were just yeah. trading back and forth playing acoustic, and it that's was awesome. one of my favorite shows of all time. Was this World Cafe Live? It was, yeah. yeah. I might have been at that, actually. I think oh, that okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, opening act was uh, Lady Lamb the Beekeeper. Right. Yeah, I was definitely at that show because she was a such a that like that was an that was an awakening moment for me too because uh the second i heard her voice i was like okay need to buy her her desk and follow yeah. whatever she's about to do because she was fantastic yes yeah. i remember her 
Uh, the the tenth and final John. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite John of all time? <laughs> Would be could be anything ever, your, ever, all time. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know if this is this qualifies as an answer, but um, laughing that absolutely <laughs> qualifies. Uh, I love it because I have realized that if I have something that makes me laugh every day, it tends to be a good day, regardless of any kinds of uh, obstacles or heavy stuff that may happen. In fact, before I was getting ready to come on this podcast, I was watching this movie that was recommended to me by a friend. Uh, it's on Netflix currently called Bad Trip. Uh, I've heard good things. Eric Andre. It's, I mean, I, <laughs> I think I, you know, I've, I live in an apartment building. It's a four unit apartment building. And the other ladies that live in this building are all, you know, kind of a little older than me. And I was just laughing so maniacally. Like <laughs> here, the lady that lives above me just kind of stirring. And I'm sure she was wondering like, what's going on down? Because <laughs> I'm listening to the movie on my computer with my AirPods in. So like, it's just nothing but silence. And then, <laughs> like belly laughs, just like the loudest shit you could imagine. And, uh, it actually just, you know, I guess you get some kind of endorphin rush from that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's just as good as music, you know? <laughs> absolutely. So I, I, I put a high premium on laughter. That's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> Fantastic. So what, what, what's going on now? What do you got coming up? I know you guys were going to do the uh, Caulfield's reunion uh, for 25 years last year, and then you did the single uh, for Phil Abundance, uh, yep. what was that, this past December? Yep, we did um, Level News together as our, our benefit single. So, yeah, we actually have some kind of cool Caulfields news that I'll share with you. Um, this fall, I think the weekend of September 10th, we are going to do a, a live concert. It's going to be down in Dewey Beach, Delaware, at the awesome. Bottling Fork. Um, and we are going to be, the plan is to make that, a uh, sort of a Caulfields and friends kind of a night. So we're putting together, you know, a, uh, a little bill that's going to involve probably like, uh, you know, uh, friends of ours from the era in Delaware when we were kind of coming up in the ranks. So we're, we're working on getting some people involved with that. And in addition to that, we are going to be releasing a Caulfields concert movie, which actually came about in a very, interesting and unexpected way. We had been asked to play a birthday party. Okay. What it started out as is the, the wife of a guy that we have known for 25 plus years, a friend of ours, actually a very good friend of our bass player's cousin. It was his 50th birthday and his wife contacted me. And basically it started out with, Oh, will you guys do like a live stream for Frank's birthday? You know, I'm thinking of renting a room in a pizza shop. You know, we'll stream your Facebook live into this monitor that I'm going to. It sounded all very quaint and, and pleasant. And we were going to all just play acoustic in our bass player's living room. So cut to like two weeks after that, I get a call from the guy whose birthday it's going to be. 
And he's like, listen, buddy, my wife spilled the beans and I was very appreciative, but I was also like, thank you, honey. But you know what? Fuck that. If I'm going to have the Caulfields play my birthday, it's going to be a real thing. So (laughs) this guy was a sound guy back in the day. And he used to be very, uh, I think he worked for this company called Claire Brothers, which is like, it's like the number one concert staging company in the world, pretty much. And they're based in PA. Okay. Uh, So like this guy basically called in all these favors and put together his birthday party in this gigantic warehouse with like, so have you ever just walked in off the street uh, into like the electric factory or something? That's Uh, what it was like. We walked in out of the parking lot and I'm looking at like a humongous stage, like 30 foot across with the sound systems that hang from the ceiling. So we've come to find out he, they lent him or, or so the story gets really weird. The PA that we used was the same PA that the Rolling Stones used in the nineties. Whoa. Which is a pretty fucking powerful PA system. And it had like a gigantic, like the mixer for the monitors was, you know, six feet across, you know, yeah. on the side of the stage. So we do this show and like we knew that it was going to be that kind of thing going in. But until you see it, you just don't really grasp it. But we had the foresight to hire some people to record it and to videotape it. (laughs) Very nice. We're, you know, so the footage we got back and, you know, the audio, I mean, it basically looks like we're playing like an arena show. So cool. So we're just going to like. You know, I mean, we're going to cut out the like happy birthday to you and <laughs> songs and just use the musical performances and like intercut it with like, you know, some other interview stuff and stuff like that. And it's going to look like a pretty cool concert movie. That is awesome. But That's- like, what a weird, uh, you know, like who would have thought that that's what would have happened? <laughs> you Seriously. Know? All, I mean, from, all from a birthday stream. <laughs> right. And, and then come to find out. After the fact, he's like, he comes up to me afterwards. He's like, you know, this isn't the last time we're doing this. You know that, right? I'm like, well, that's cool. But like, how are you going to get all this together again? And da, 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 da. I'm like, I'm sure this PA is, you know, if you had to rent it, you know, it'd be pretty. And he's like, no, dude, you don't understand. They gave this to me. I'm like, what? What do you mean they gave it to you? He's like, dude, they don't use this shit anymore because everything is digital now. Oh my God. This is a dinosaur of a PA. It's like, you know, everything is like so much more compact. They would never send this out on the road ever again. So they're just giving it to me. I'm like, this is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) That is unbelievable. Yeah. So, you know, we played through, you know, whatever, whatever stones tour happened in the nineties, that PA. (laughs) That's incredible. I wonder if that was, I don't know if you remember, but in the late 90s, uh, mid to late 90s, they were doing small theater shows when they were touring with their um, with, uh, uh, you know, their big stadium shows. So, like, they ended up playing, I think, the tower. Yeah, that's that's unbelievable. I I will definitely say this PA was big enough to fill like electric factory. No problem. Yeah. No problem. Wow. Unbelievable. So So do you have a target? 
We were loud. <laughs> is there a target date for that? Or are you guys just kind target of... date is actually to release at the weekend we play in Dewey beach. So Smart. the idea yeah. would be to have like almost like a, uh, like a premiere release show for that, like the night before the actual show. Very cool. That's so, the plan. so if any of uh, these cool cats and kittens who listen to this show, uh, want to find you on the social medias, how can they track you down? Uh, best thing to do is just go to my main website which is just johnfay.com j-o-h-n-f-a-y-e.com it's got the links to everything you would ever need to know about me on there very cool well thank you very much for joining me today this was amazing and i'm so happy to have had you on here thank you so much nate this was really really cool thank you My thanks again to John Fay for joining me on the podcast. You can find John on his website at www.johnfay.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash jfay, and on Instagram at John Kim Fay. And be sure to be on the lookout for more information about the Caulfields reunion show at the Bottle and Cork in Dewey Beach, Delaware, coming this September. How exciting is that? If you have not done so already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on all your favorite podcast providers and share it. Sharing is caring. Tell all your friends about it. And if you fancy yourself an overachiever and you want to get a little bit of extra credit, don't forget that you can earn yourself that super awesome John Scout merit badge for citizenship of the world by rating and reviewing us. The more reviews we get, the easier it is for people to find us and the more guests we can get on the show. Do it for the children don't forget to visit www.yothatsmyjohn.com and like us on facebook at facebook.com slash yo that's my john for updates and live streams follow us on instagram and twitter at yo that's my john and find yo that's my john on youtube for all kinds of video tomfoolery including my cover of the jim steinman classic tonight is what it means to be young that birthed my obsession with the late great mr steinman Like and subscribe the heck out of that ish. We want to hear from you. Reach out, reach out, and touch some John. Well, I hope you enjoyed episode 2.3. Thanks for taking another ride on the podcast train with me. Join us next week for yet another mini-sode of the podcast. We're going to celebrate somebody's birthday. Guess who? Me! Until next time, everybody! Hey yo, displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure. Your taste in music doesn't have to be measured. Yo, That's My John is a Lonely Monk production written and produced by yours truly, Nate Runkle. Theme song by Phil Tyler Music featuring Nate 3.0. Special thanks to Fox Run Brands, DX Ferris, Andrew Scott, Natalie Runkle, and the incredibly brilliant and wickedly stunning Katie Daubney. If you or anyone you know has any ideas they would like to share or any guests they would like to hear on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at yo that's my john at gmail.com. Or you can leave an audio message for us and possibly hear yourself on a future episode by visiting anchor.fm slash ytmj slash message. Until next time, be sure to displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure and shout. To the world, yo, that's my John. <laughs> <laughs>